0: Welcome, welcome to the Hot Stove Society Radio Show on Cairo. This is Tom Douglas here from the Hot Stove Society Kitchens, downtown Seattle, in the beautiful Hotel Andra. We are thrilled that you're with us and thankful, and hopefully you're doing something cool in your kitchen, like making duck confit or something in the honor that Mr. Rotero has uh, taken a vacation week down to see Willie Nelson in California, did the big drive. And so let's all cook something French in his honor Tomorrow, I'm cooking French onion soup. I'm doing uh, French uh, red wine braised duck legs and all this and that Ooh, for Jackie's uh, Jackie's birthday. Yeah, she's uh, she has picked out her whole menu. She's done the work on the stocks and stuff, so everything's going to be ready. And she, is, she loves that kind of food. That's one of her favorites. Uh, happy birthday, Jackie Cross.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Farmer-in-chief yeah, yeah. of our restaurant group and, of course, my business partner and wife. Uh, today, we have uh, two delicious hours coming right at you. We're going to... Uh, Talk about the chicory family, which we love because of bitter greens. Last night I made the classic winter white salad in the class I was teaching here at the Hot Stove, and we're going to go over that and how easy it is this time of year. Our favorite soups for fall and Soup Club class coming up on November tenth. If you've if you've struggled with soups, or if you always find yourself making canned stocks, or or you know just a soup is more of a last minute throw together rather than a thoughtful process. Let's go through what it takes to make a great soup, all right? And let's, uh, let's That's make some what I want to learn. And let's actually then make enough so that you can put a few in your freezer. I put half pints of soup all over my freezer and lard the pantry, so to speak. We're going to hear about the supply chain challenges. Uh, beat the system. Start your holiday planning now. Uh, you know, there's a big uh, onion problem out there right now. Uh, it happens to not be uh, in our state at the moment because we're – we're mostly Washington onions here, but there's a distributor out of uh, Montana, I think, an odd place. It was a, like a, just a distributor, not a grower, but a distributor company uh, that was distributing onions around the country. So 40 states right now have uh, asked you to take onions off your shelves and out of your fridges and throw them away or, uh, because there's some salmonella issues out there. There's about 1,000 people sick across the country. That's you know, In the big picture, that's not a lot. But um, these onions were shipped somewhere back in August, late August. And, of course, onions have a long shelf life, so they could still be around. Uh, not at my, not my house. They don't last that long <laughs> in my house, I can tell you that right now. But they're grown in Mexico onions, so look at your labels and get rid of the ones that aren't from Washington Uh, As we continue National Seafood Month, we're going to talk with Paula Cassidy, president of Wild Salmon Seafood Market, a place that I go quite often down there at Fisherman's Terminal for a couple of reasons. One is I find myself at the Bay Cafe down there having a little breakfast uh, every other week or so and then uh, taking a stroll around. You know, as a chef, I use a lot of seafood. And uh, to stand out there and give thanks to that Fisherman's Memorial there is chilling and uh, at the same time sort of heartwarming. You know, people... Uh, lots of people die, and I know, And uh, but uh, these are guys oftentimes in the middle of their careers and, and ladies. Uh, I don't mean it to be gender specific, but uh, uh, it's just something to think about. Think about the, how your seafood gets to your table, that all that uh, greatness is uh, sometimes a dangerous sport. I will tell you that. I mean, you've watched Deadliest Catch, you know, uh, in a funny way. It's kind of like watching a game, but uh, it's a deadly game. Our good friend Tina Knoll, former producer of our show, and to help me get this show up and running 20 years ago. She's going to join us today for a couple of segments and also play our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. I firmly intend on crushing her <laughs> like the little peepod that she is. She's, she's about shaking the, like a leaf. She's about the tiniest person I know, other than our new Princess Di, your assistant there uh, here at the show. And, of course, Robert Love Tasty Trivia Challenge. Uh, my Taste of the Week. Boy, I've had so many this week. Uh, Pam, you and I were lucky enough to do a three-day event here at the Hot Stove of, with a group of uh, CEOs from around the country, and we made lots and lots of food.
1: Lots of deliciousness. And
0: we were judging food because we had to have winners and losers, which is odd in the kitchen. You know, I just like to see people's efforts. But uh, what I will say is that I had one piece of salmon this week, and of all the different salmons oh. uh, that um you can buy right now you know whether it's bristol bay sockeye king coho or the silvers uh i tend to i don't buy coho as much i feel like i'm either between the red salmon which is sockeye or uh, if there's king i tend to want to go king but we got these cohos because they were the only head on fish available and part of my class was to demo how to cut up a salmon so um you were here or were you gone by then when I, was, I was enjoying it. You were enjoying it. And we did that, um, the Rub With Love Salmon Rub, which is our best-selling rub and the best-selling salmon rub in the world. And uh, You know, I eat it a lot, so sometimes I move away from it because I eat it every week for the last 25 years, 30 years. But uh, we did it that night with the class, and we did the sear and got the golden crusty brown on it, which is, is super important, right? Uh, and then uh, we pulled it off the burner raw almost in the middle because we weren't ready to sit down for dinner. We had to change the room over. So then right before dinner service, we popped it back in the oven at uh, 350 and just kind of warmed it through. And for coho, it was such a beautiful
1: fish. It was just, I find coho a little lean sometimes. It looked uh, uh, fattier and moister than I, I know. Expected. I
0: you know because the head was on. I looked at it and I thought this is a king, but the head was on, so it was definitely a coho. Yeah, and uh, it was the eyes were crystal clear. It was just the most perfect fish. We got it at City Fish down there in the Pike Place Market, and um, I don't know what to say about it. It just took me by surprise. It was such an incredible bite. Uh, And that is my taste of the week. So just very simply cooked, a little sear, a little salt and pepper, a little lemon juice, and then um, warmed through. And that's probably the key at the end of the day. You and I talk Mm. about cooking fish all the time. To me, what people do incorrectly almost all the time is that they'll cook the one whole side of the fish, you you know, the chunk, and they'll cook it probably too long. They might put it too dark or they might not cook it long enough. And then they turn it on the other side and try to cook the same thing again. Whereas on the other side, if you've cooked it halfway through from the top and you turn it, you don't want to cook it halfway through from the bottom, right? Because you already have the heat at the top that's still cooking that fish. So it's cooking as you're cooking. And so you want to cook it maybe a quarter of the way through and then turn it off the heat and let the residual heat from the pan Continue to warm that fish all the way through to about 120, 125, depending on what you like in the center of your fish. If you like a little bit of translucent center, uh, that is uh, that is 120. If you like it a little bit more medium, 125 to 130. So the, use your digital thermometer on a piece of salmon just like you would on a, on a prime rib. Just stick it in there and see what's going on in, inside that fillet of fish. But that's my taste of the week. It was super good, and um, it ha- just happened to have my Rub with left Salmon rub on it, which, like I said, I eat it so much that I kind of sometimes I just step away from it and don't have it for months at a time. And it came back, and I was like, I know why this is a big seller now. Yeah,
2: I mean, I was away from the coconut cream pie for a long time after having it almost on a daily basis for like five years. So. Right. it's you know, after a break, it's still delicious. And it's, you know, not that you need a break, but... I mean,
0: no, you understand. I mean, oh, totally. Our totally. customers don't have it every day like we do, right? And so yeah. well, they understand that if you have something every day, right. for years, that but it's amazing that we have that flavor kind of logged
2: as a bookmark. You can always come back to it.
0: All right, we got to run. Pick of the season chicory is coming right back up on Hot Stove Society Radio Cairo ninety-seven three FM. Okay, friends, it's time for chicories here on the Hot Stove Society Radio Show. I'm Tom Douglas, and I'm flying solo today. My good pal, Chef Terry Rotero, is uh, on vacation down on the beach in California. Hopefully, not getting inundated with this uh, huge rainstorm that's hitting the west coast this weekend. That would be such a shame to go all the way down there oh, for I know. some heat and sun and not and, get any. And not get it. Yeah, exactly. So
1: I texted him. He's not. He, he's not responding. So he's I don't think responding. he's watching us on Facebook. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, Pamela, you put these chicories on because I know um, you know years ago, not years ago, but a couple of years ago, we used to be part of a group that did the Sagra de Ridicio, right? The celebration of Ridicio. And, uh, you know, there's so many different varieties out there. You grow some in your garden. I know yes. Jackie grows some in our in our garden for the restaurants. Um, what, what do you love about chicories?
1: When Jackie and the Culinary Breeding Network put on that sagra, mm-hmm. and we had seven farmers there with all their chicory varieties, it blew my mind. Mm-hmm. The beauty, the bitterness, the colors and shapes, and... Uh, I've been obsessed ever since. So The, sh-
0: the shapes are somewhat prehistoric sometimes. They yeah. are. They yeah.
1: all stem from the wild field-grown chicories. Mm-hmm. But now they've taken on um, the, uh, shapes like squash footballs and pumpkins and just a tremendous amount of variegation in the color of them. But there is now... Um, the Culinary Breeding Network is still celebrating... Uh, chicory week, and it started on Monday the 18th and goes through December. (laughs) The the week goes just like Seattle Restaurant Week, that's actually a month. (laughs) And the best way to enjoy it, because the supermarkets don't have uh, varieties in abundance is to work with your local farmers. And, and one of our partners at the SAGRA was Local Roots Farm, mm-hmm. and they are offering a, a box of assorted radicchios that you pre-order, and they're bringing to Seattle on November 6th. So if you would like to go deep into the beauty of this vegetable, I recommend ordering a box from their website. And they're going to deliver it multiple places in Seattle, local Roots Farm. But back to the vegetable itself, I love it for its bitterness and the contrast to the rich fall foods. Um, last night, I just made a quick slaw out of a radicchio to go on top of uh, the crab cake, um, just to brighten it up a little, because mm-hmm. the crab cake's so rich and yummy and crispy, but then I wanted a little zing. So I just did olive oil and a squeeze of lemon on the radicchio on the side. Mm-hmm. And you made an endive salad last night, right? I made
0: what we call the winter white salad. And I don't remember which of our chefs started that salad way back when at the Dahlia. I want to say it was matt costello who's up at the inn at langley now but i don't really mm. honestly remember it's been years uh you know that's what happens in our restaurants we have we at the time we had 15 restaurants and so you have 15 chefs making all sorts of things and sometimes uh um they just kind of hit and become a, a standard at one of the restaurants and so long after the chef leaves we're still serving something that uh maybe they developed or uh, that happens all the time so uh, the good news is when they developed it, they were getting paid by us. So that's that's how that works. Uh, but the winter white salad I made, it's not really, you know, it's funny. We call it winter white because it uh, it's a, just an all-white salad. It doesn't look like anything you might serve in the middle of summer with the greens and the colorful fruits and this and that. It's all kind of whitish produce. And so that, it's just got the name winter white. But obviously there's none of this stuff that's growing here in the middle of winter so it's belgian endive which is white uh it is um a, a frizzy chicory or frizzy endive so it's got the green tips but it's mostly a white stem the one we would call frisee frisee yeah 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 it's got cucumbers uh which are pretty much peeled for this salad because we want it to be a winter white salad but you can leave it in there for a dash of green Uh, We've got fennel bulb, which, of course, is white. And then we use some of the fennel fronds for a splash of green. Uh, It's got a white cheese. We use Reggiano Parmesan or a nice salty Pecorino. Work beautifully. Uh, The difference is, uh, and one of the things I showed in class last night, is get out your graters sometime. When you're making a salad or, or something, get out your graters and look at the different size grates of cheese that you can make. You can use, like, a fine zesting kind of grater and get these really tiny wisp of cheese. And when you put them on the salad, like this, our particular salad only had garlic, olive oil, so we steeped uh, olive oil in, with garlic, salt, lemon juice, lemon zest. That was it for the dressing. But So when you put the really wispy cheese on, it literally soaks in and becomes kind of like part of the dressing. You almost have a cheesy lemon dressing. When you take a thicker uh, grate of the cheese or just press harder on the grater, You'll get a little bit more intentional cheese flavor, and you'll get a little bit more intentional separation from the salad. Then go in and use like a box grater and use a larger cut, and now cheese is one of the ingredients. It is a very intentional ingredient in the salad. You taste the cheese, you taste the cucumber, you taste the fennel, or you go all the way to a peeler and you use a big, heavy slice of cheese that's still wispy from the peeler, but it's... it's it's almost like now it's a cheese salad with some vegetables, right? And yeah, so that's it's a just big a, difference. It's a big difference from how you grate the cheese, and I don't think people think about you know that when it comes to a, a recipe that says, "Okay, put Parmesan in." Okay, what does that mean, right? Is that part of the salad? Is it dominating the salad? Is it whatever? So, uh, my winter white salad, the cheese is uh, intended to be there. Uh, but it's not intended to be a cheese salad, right? It's not intended to be an in, intentional ingredient. It's more about a support ingredient in that salad. So I have, have all those things together. And another important thing when you're making a big salad like this is I left my frisée in long strands and I, I, I put it in a separate bowl and dressed it in a separate bowl so that when I was ready, I put that beautiful long wispy frisée on the bottom of the salad. And then I cut everything up in, in, in similar sizes. To be mixed in a separate bowl to kind of go on top of that. So I rebuilt this salad, and it almost looked like I had a frisée by the time we're done because you you have that you know <laughs> on frisée where it's really wide at the outside and the tight little brand new little shoots shoots to come out mm-hmm. the center are tiny and and uh, uh, tender and all delicious. So anyway, so you kind of rebuild your salad in a way that looks beautiful at the table, and then everyone can get. Some of everything. Sometimes when you do a big salad, chopped salad, you don't. If you're passing it around the table, you can't really see how to get some of everything. Might all the croutons might be on the bottom, or you know, whatever. So, so that's um, what I do with that. The other thing, and I think you've seen it here, is we love to grill our chicories.
1: Oh, I know. I yeah. Escarole, I think, is just perfect for that because it has enough tooth. That it can stand up to the grill and take a warm dressing. Take that- a warm dressing, and it cooks super fast. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it cooks in a few minutes, but it picks up the wood fire a lot. It's uh, porous. It's, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> definitely it definitely does. Uh, when you do escarole, uh, the thing about cooking it too far in advance is it wants to turn gray. Yes. Yeah. So it's not the prettiest after it's been cooked for very long. So you want to get it cooked and get it on the table while it still has some green left to it. And same thing with, you know, sometimes fennel does the same thing. Certainly Belgian endive does the same thing. Uh, a lot of these kind of uh, blonde vegetables will turn gray when you cook them. So just uh, the longer they sit, the more gray they get.
1: I like the companion they provide to fruits, too. At this time of year, I'm tending to throw apples a lot in a salad. And the, uh, this whole family of bitter greens with either some... Yellow raisins or apples—it's mm-hmm. just—it's a—it's a wonderful blend. Yeah,
0: and on so, salty meats work well with them too, Ooh, like prosciutto yeah,
1: salty and meat
0: <laughs> deliciousness. Uh, a, a a escarole and lardon salad—you've seen those in, from France all the time. Speaking while Terry's gone, nice poached egg on there, mm. so dreamy, yeah. dreamy. It's soup season. Let's make some soup when we come back here. It's the Hot Stove Society on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Hi, everybody. It's Tom Douglas here at the Hot Stove Society, downtown Seattle, in the beautiful Hotel Andra. Thanks for joining us today. Chef Terry's got the day off, but we're going to make soup without him. I I am making soup as we speak because we tape this on Friday, Facebook Live, if you're ever interested in coming on and watching on Friday mornings with us for a couple hours, 9 to 11 here at the Hot Stove or on your computer at at the Hot com. right? Is that where we're at? Or maybe you don't use the .dot com, Sean. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, it's no, just I'm Hot Stove Radio. Hot Stove so- Radio. Search Hot Stove Radio. Yeah, yeah there you go. Find us. Uh, so while this is uh, being played on Saturday and Sunday, I'll be making Jackie uh, her birthday dinner, and one of the things she wanted was French onion soup. And since <laughs> Chef Terry isn't here to correct how I do it,
1: <laughs> <laughs> you can do it your way. I can do it my Fantastic. way
0: and not and feel good about it. So. Um, so for me, making French, I'm, let's just talk soup first, and then we'll get back to the French onion part of this. But uh, So good soups. I feel like, Pam, I think I started the show with this, is that a lot of people, when they make soup, they're just making it from the kitchen sink kind of soup, right? I got this in the fridge. I got that in the fridge. I got a can of stock or a box
1: of stock yes. in there.
0: And it's not a very thoughtful process.
1: Right. And it doesn't end up being uh, a delicious soup. (laughs) I would say you have the chances of
0: one in five of making something delicious because it's uh, but when you think about the soup and start to plan a couple of days in advance and maybe think about making soup to go into your freezer, something that you're going to want six months from now when you pull it out, you're not going to want to be embarrassed about what you put in your freezer. Uh, You want it to be a little bit more intentional. And so. The first thing I did, and Jackie did it yesterday, uh, was make our stocks, right? So yesterday she made a delicious uh, turkey stock because she likes to to get that up and going before Thanksgiving. So it's ready to go for my gravy uh, at Thanksgiving. She made a beautiful chicken stock and a gorgeous beef stock. And we still had a quart of beef broth and a pint of beef demi in our freezer from the last time we made stock about eight months ago. So we just added that back in, reboiled it, and it's just going to become part of that stock. So that's one of the ways we keep our freezer fresh is to kind of just rotate things in and out like that. So, um, so now we're going to start our soup today with a beautiful, rich, homemade stock with real beef bones, real chicken bones, or real turkey bones uh, instead of buying something off the shelf that is um, it may or may not be delicious. Uh, from there, I think the next process is to kind of time out your cooking. So let's just say you're making minestrone, right? And so minestrone in my mind is something where a lot of people just put broth on the stove and they start throwing vegetables into it. Uh, so for, for me, minestrone, it's whether it's going to have a tomato base or a, just a vegetable broth base or chicken broth base. And once I get there, I got my stock and it's still on the side. And now I'm going to get out my biggest roasting pan, put a little olive oil in there or chicken schmaltz, something like that. And now I'm actually going to, I know this sounds like, oh, my God, I would never do that much work. But I'm actually going to saute each vegetable separately to get it to where I want it to go in the pot and where it's going to cook in the same amount of time. So, for example, if I want to get some brown on my onions now, which I don't want a ton, but I want a little caramelization. I'm going to get those done because if I put the onions and the carrots and the celery and everything in at the same time, it's hard to get brown on my onions, right? If I want a little, if I don't want anything on my green beans, I, I'll just keep those cut up ready to go in separately. And then, uh, Or my cooked beans, get them to a point where they're going to finish cooking in the same amount of time as everything else I'm putting in the pot. Because if you put hard beans in a pot with all your carrots and celery, they're going to be completely overcooked. So think about it the way you would think about putting together a dinner and get all your vegetables kind of lined up and ready to go so that when they're ready to go in the pot, it's 10 minutes from there to the time it's done. It's not something you want to continue to boil and cook and never to a boil, always to a simmer.
2: Totally. So, with the dry beans, adding that to a minestrone, would you cook that separately, yep. or
0: would you always, just always, totally? So you don't, you can control the the time. You, you control the bean, about. and you also control the cloudiness of your stock, right? Because if you totally. cook the beans, yeah. uh, it's going to over overwhelm your stock. So, of uh, when because you want really a minestrone. For me, I want all the fresh veggies to kind of show. Totally, totally. And so now, there's one. I want to finish this soup. One second. So now my soup is there, my olive oil, all the ingredients are into my broth, my olive oil, and you got this nice little oil slick on top of your soup. That's a good thing, by the way. Don't be skimming off all the fat. Then once it's done, once you've cooked it five, five, eight minutes, add a simmer to bring everything together. Now is when I want to add my fresh herbs. Now is when I want to add a little chunk of, of minced garlic so that and you're not going to cook it more, right? You're going to put all that stuff in there. You've got the layer of flavor below it, and now you've got this brightness on top of it. Or make an herb pesto, and when you serve the soup, stir in a nice teaspoonful of herb pesto. You do not want to cook all of your fresh herbs to death when you're cooking the soup. So that's a big thing. I think people thing.
1: overcook soup, and you just took us through such uh, an important look at At what you're doing because if you don't treat the vegetables separately as you said and you're depending on waiting for the beans to finish for instance or your potatoes uh you get nothing but mush right so So you yeah i'm learning something today (laughs)
0: well i think the, the most important thing of what i was trying to say was that once you get everything in that pot of soup a lot of people have a tendency to just let it go for a half hour yeah or you know but get it to a simmer and then it's five minutes because you got to remember, it's cooking all the time. You're bringing it to a simmer; it's still cooking. And so uh, it, more than 10 minutes, you've overcooked your soup. It's just not necessary. In that soup, if you wanted to go back now and crush a can of tomatoes and put your can of tomatoes in, still, it's a 10-minute finish because the, can, the tomatoes in the can are already cooked.
1: What right. about, I, I believe that it benefits from resting overnight before you eat it. Yeah, My best luck has been... When I make something, put it away and come back. But it, is that.?
0: that is, I, I would say absolutely not on minestrone, but um, I would say that is a better luck with like a beef barley soup, like a heavy soup where it's more like a stew. Uh, but a minestrone, it doesn't help to rest. Because here's the thing in your hot broth, those vegetables are going to cook for the rest of the time it takes you to cool that soup, right? And then they're going to cook again when you reheat that soup. And so maybe the broth is uh, something different, but your veggies are going to suffer. Yeah. So, Unless
2: you go al dente and you just kind of undercook it on purpose, but I don't know anyone who
0: really... Here's the other thing. Most people, I will say this, and I don't blame you. In your fridge at home, it's hard to find a spot. It's hard to find a place. If you've got a, <laughs> if you've got a gallon of Same. soup on the stove, it's hard to find a spot in your I'm, fridge to cool it properly, right? Yeah. The law says here at the restaurant, so the law says that... Uh, you have to take it – to be cooked, you have to take it to 150, 155 degrees, right? Yeah. Totally. Uh, the law also says that if you're going to refrigerate it, it has to be down to 38 degrees within four hours. Now, I tell you, if you take a soup pot off your home stove and you put it in your home fridge, you come back you and take the temperature because – we're including the time, like like my wife says. Oh, I'm going to leave it on the counter to cool, and then I'm going to put it in the fridge. That's what I do. Yeah, that's exactly the opposite of what you should be doing, right? <laughs> so in the restaurants, we'll take that pot of soup and we'll put it in big hotel pans. It it cannot. The law says it can't be more than two inches deep in the cooling pan. Yeah, in the cooling pan, we all know two the two inch deep. rule
2: around the kitchen for sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: So what it's we critical. do is if yeah. we don't have the space to to Put the soup in hotel pans, put it on a a cart, and put it in the walk-in and let it chill. What we have are things that we have in our freezer, and they're called ice wands, right? And they're these plastic ice sticks. You fill them with water, you put the lid on, and you freeze them, and you drop the ice wand into your pot of soup.
1: I have not seen that.
0: Super chill it really quickly. I totally and, forgot about the ice wand. It's been so many
2: years since I've made like a 10-gallon. <laughs> yeah, we ten, have room, gallon, to, we yeah, have room you know. to chill
0: it. But at home, yeah. I guarantee you, you put that hot soup in your fridge. You come back the next morning. I'm going to give you 10 hours. You come back the next morning and put a thermometer in there, and it won't even be to 40 degrees. Uh-oh. Yeah. Well, I, Breeding uh, ground here's for trouble. The thing. If you're in trouble like that, you have to boil your soup the next day, yeah. right? And so you can, Another, you can save yourself by boiling it. But yeah. – a, t- a trick I've done is doing maybe a condensed version of the soup
2: and then adding that water back in in the form of ice. Uh-huh. When you're done, mm-hmm. you see people do this oh, with brines. Brilliant. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. a large you know a large thing of brine for your yeah. Turkey you, you're or... gonna ma- use your you know your your aromatics, get it steeped. Maybe use half the liquid you would and add the other half in ice just to k- cool that down instantly. That way you can get your turkey right in there. Uh, you know, and I think we've yeah, it's pretty standard practice in kitchens in restaurants, but I don't know if home cooks do that kind of stuff. You know? Exactly. So,
0: well, look, look online. Find yourself an ice wand. But the thing is, you can't uh, overfill your pot of soup because once you put the wand in, it's going to overflow the top. <laughs> Good call.
1: We've got a great soup class coming up November 10th with Caroline Wright. Her book is Soup Club, and if you come to the class, you get a copy of the book. The ones I'm looking forward to tasting are... Um, the Catalan chickpea stew. Um, She also does a beautiful Jamaican pumpkin and a West African vegetable stew. Uh, A little disclaimer, all of these soups are going to be plant-based. Wow.
0: Yeah. uh, So here's another question. Uh, Is stew soup? Oh, is chili soup. <laughs> I mean, that's, I'm a, I'm going to we can fight about chili that. Chili no. We could well, if chili's not a soup, how is stew a soup? Stew is a soup. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I never got back to my French onion soup that I wanted to make while Terry was oh, missing. Oh, that's right. Uh some easy with some easy planning you can make some of your holiday treats as we speak. Right here on Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Society Show 97.3 FM. We're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen. My name is Tom Douglas. Here's the, here's the effort that we're going to make right now to make our holidays go as smoothly as possible. Uh, what we're going to talk about is a, little, a few things that you can do right now uh, to be ready to go for your holiday. I'll, I'll just go off the first one. I, we just brought over 100 totes of squash from our farm, and they're all cured and ready to go. And uh, all that is getting processed right now of into Butternut squash pumpkin uh, filling for our holiday pumpkin pies that we sell at the Dahlia Bakery. So. I can't
1: wait. I look forward to that pie every year. Every year, yeah. Uh, so Pam,
0: we talk a little bit about the things you can make in advance. This is such an easy one, and it gives you it gives you the feeling like you've really made a homemade pumpkin pie, even though you did it did the work on it over a month ago, right? But you've really made the squash. And so what we do is we Dry roast the squash, skin it, uh, uh, scoop it off the skin, put it in a strainer, and then we let the juice kind of drain out of it. Because you want a pretty dry pumpkin for a pumpkin pie. And then we put it, pack it in the uh, whatever size an individual pie container would be. So that if I want to make five pumpkin pies, I pull out five quarts of of my pumpkin or or whatever that number is, right? You have to do your research on how much pumpkin. Because with pumpkin pie, you want the, the pumpkin, which is often butternut squash. Uh, you want the pumpkin, you know, cream, eggs, everything. Uh, you want that all to be the right size for when you're making one pie for home. It's a little different for us when we're making 500 pies. Yeah. <laughs> That's some processing. Right. And I will tell you this year, if you're a, if you're an annual pie buyer from the Dahlia Bakery, you better get your order in early because we've cut our production in half because we just don't have the people to do it to this make year. them. Yeah, so we're only normally more than half. Normally we would make close to a thousand pies on uh, for Thanksgiving. This year it's two hundred and fifty.
1: Ooh, yeah. so there's going to
0: be some unhappy people. That's one of the things that I would do. Other things uh, that you can make uh, right now. We're just picked the last of our plums. And so a plum conserva, so when you're thinking about holidays and you're having people over, and it's really nice to pull out something where you can show your effort, uh, like on a cheese board, going to the store to buy cheese is one thing. Putting it on a platter is another thing. Uh, But where's your effort? Where's your real effort, right? And so when you can pull out a plum conserva or a plum mistarda, something like that that you made from the crops back in September and October, uh, I think that really says something to your guests that you've thought about them, you've thought about this dinner, and that you're more invested in the process. You ever do that? You what do you what are you putting away right now?
1: I know we don't agree on this, but I. I'm obsessed with preserved lemons, Uh huh. and I've been saying for five years I was going to make it for my holiday gift, and this is the year. Really? Um, have you started them yet? No. Oh, then we're not having them this year. Yes, two months. We still have two months. You're That's why too, you have to start now.
0: You're too busy. You're not going to get good. Uh, what did the recipes say? How long do you have to salt them and let them sit? Two months. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, like we're going to see them. Yeah.
1: But I... I got to thinking about this because every day in the news we hear about the difficulty at all the ports and the shipping containers. And they're Mm -hmm. saying, you know, you you can't shop for Christmas. There isn't going to be anything in the stores. And it would be so much more fulfilling and meaningful to make something to give Mm -hmm. someone. And I last year, your niece, Beth, gave me some. Vanilla, You probably got it, mm-hmm. too. That little vanilla syrup extract thing. Yeah. That beautiful. It just kept adding such a nice touch to fruit salads and yogurt. Mm-hmm. And that made a big impression on me. And, and so easy. And right? so One easy. One vanilla
0: bean, and you can either just mix honey with simple syrup. You can do it, whatever you want to do, but it's such a simple thing.
1: And gorgeous yeah. and useful. And then... Uh, Linnea did the herb salts. Mm-hmm. Um, that is definitely on my list, too, because who, there's so many uses for that, and you can customize it to your palate. In honor of Terry, mine is going to have a lot of thyme in it and some mustard. Right.
0: <laughs> some dried mustard, yeah.
1: Some dry mustard. But, uh,
0: uh, well, yeah. you think about all these issues at the ports. Uh, how nice would it be, to, instead of getting... Um, you know, another plastic toy uh, for your kid, even for my grandkid. He doesn't need any more plastic toys, right? He has right? so
1: many toys. Know. He,
0: so uh, maybe we should just go ahead and let those plastic toys sit out on the container ships and we'll all just gather in the kitchen. And how nice would it be for me? Like, I, I make a delicious ham soup. I know that's crazy, but... Uh, I love ham that soup. Yeah, I make Ooh, that's old fashioned with red rice and ham, ah. ham soup and with the tomatoes base that we grew all the tomatoes for. We're just making our last of our tomato sauces right now. But uh, how nice would it be to get a quart of ham soup for Christmas uh, instead of a plastic toy? And that's something that even a baby can eat. Right. Yes. Just puree it up and even a baby can eat the ham soup. And uh, there's enough plastic toys out there.
1: <laughs> uh, are you going to can it or freeze it? I'm going to freeze it. Okay,
0: I'm going to freeze it. And you know, like for my daughter, I have to keep everything frozen for my daughter in my house because her freezer is jammed so much it makes me want to puke when I go over there. <laughs> like I can't. I'm a, a little bit of an organizer freak, and uh, yes, you are. You
1: guys should see
0: his garage. The tools freezer, are all lined her up. Her fridge and freezer are gross, and, and not with bad food, just you know they they're they're, the, they're classic millennials right they're out there ordering food they order too much so there's all this leftover food and uh, so it's you know whatever
1: the big craze uh, if you look at the do it yourself gift websites is chili crisps everybody's uh-huh. jumping on the chili crisps and it's easy wagon, to make and it's easy to make yeah. mm-hmm. not there's we're we're having a young couple on in a couple of weeks that has a brand in Seattle here now, Kerry Kerry, and they customize theirs. Have you seen? Isn't it spectacular? Yeah. They have abundant slices of beautifully toasted garlic, so it's crispy from the chilies and the and the big garlic pieces. And I, I want to yeah. rip off that style.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's a delicious style, and of course, uh, the the Loganma chili crisp, which is kind of what started the whole craze. Yes. Um, that has fried soybeans in it to give it their crunchiness. Or sometimes some of their varieties have fried peanuts in it. And uh, But there is that little crunch that comes with Chili Crisp. I
1: love the crunch it, part.
0: It's really nice. And the
1: second most popular thing is Ted Lasso's shortbreads.
0: <laughs> so I saw that on the list. What is that? You only
1: have 30 seconds. You what haven't watched the show. No. He brings his boss. Uh, he's a soccer coach, and he brings his, bo- his boss a Pretty little pink box every morning of these shortbread cookies that he makes, uh-huh. and uh, I was talking every to, morning yeah and uh, and she 's quite beautiful, uh, but, but she eats these cookies every day and maintains her gorgeous figure, mm-hmm. but I was thinking uh that I was so revolutionary and saying, I want to figure out how to make the shortbread. You look it up on the internet, and five hundred thousand people are doing really?
0: it really. <laughs> Isn't that crazy how a show can kind of take over the culture? The culture, it has. All right, coming up in our second hour, we broadcast from our studio in the swanky hotel. Andre right here. We welcome Paula Cassidy from Wild Salmon Seafood Market, Ray Giametti, operations manager of the Fisherman's Terminal, one of my favorite places in Seattle to visit, and Tina Knoll, our old producer. I shouldn't call her old, I guess, but our former producer. (laughs) is going to visit to talk about her great finds on the washington coast that's what's all on the docket hang with us over this break and we'll be right back on cairo radio it's the hot stove society show 97 3 fm all right welcome back to the hot stove society show on cairo we got a big hour for you uh come still up paula cassidy from the wild salmon seafood market is going to be here. Ray Giametti from the uh, Fisherman's Terminal there in Ballard, one of Seattle's hot tourist spots. Uh, Tina Knowles going to be here. And, of course, we're going to wrap up the show with our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia brought to you by Rub With Love Spice Rubs. Um, we have Paula Cassidy on the line right now. She's got her toes dipped in the Pacific uh, down there somewhere in Mexico. Paula, where the heck are you?
3: I am in a little town called Barra de Navidad, uh, in the state of Jalisco in mexico and you were right on the pacific ocean it's just lovely
0: oh man does alaska fly direct there how'd you get there
3: seattle la la Manzanillo.
0: <laughs> well there you go that's a long ways away from your uh, salmon uh wild salmon market in the fisherman's terminal which uh, last week I bought a a beautiful piece of king salmon, smoked king salmon, one of my favorite things to buy there.
3: Oh, Uh, very good.
0: Yeah. Uh, I I see your market all the time. I'm a big fisherman's terminal person. And, of course, Mm -hmm. in the next segment we have Ray coming on about uh, uh, talking about the terminal and its history. But tell us about the wild salmon seafood market. We're in the middle of uh, Seafood 101 month right here on the Hot Stove Radio Show. Uh, And tell us uh, about how you – you're faring during the pandemic.
3: You got it. Well, it, it has been an interesting, what I hate to say now, two years, mm-hmm, right? Since mm-hmm. we're in our second year here. Uh, last year was a phenomenal year for the market, unfortunately, because restaurants like yours and Terry's were closed or had to do meals to go. So people started cooking much more at home. And in addition to that, we had no competition for buying fish. We got everything. I had fresh <laughs> halibut cheeks every day. Every every fresh spot prawn I could want. Um, so inventory was just phenomenal last year, yeah. and prices stayed pretty good. And then, of course, things opened up this year, and it's a little bit more competition. And of course, we're all seeing just these incredible uh, price increases on. Everything from our king salmon Dungeness crab, fresh crab meat, I think we're at fifty dollars a pound. King crab is topping fifty five dollars a pound, yeah. so I'm not really sure what's going on, but it's a little daunting this year with pricing
0: it is it is crazy uh we've had to drop Dungeness crab pretty much from our menus because it's so expensive. Uh, the supply mm-hmm. chain issues, you know trucking is super expensive, exactly. shipping to and from Asia, very expensive. So uh, yeah, there's a lot going on in that way. I bought into some king crab last year. I bought 900 pounds to get me through the summer at um, at Sea and I'm on my last 10 pound box. I'm so sad to oh, see no. it go because uh, I think I paid. Uh, you know, there's a lot of slack in king crab, right? So when you uh, when right. you buy it, it's uh, when you buy a pound of king crab. When you thaw it out and all the water comes out of it, you're down to maybe. 3 quarters of a pound and then when you take the shell off you're down to half a pound or less of meat so yeah. uh, it's yeah. uh, it's when you multiply that by the cost of it let's just say it's $50 a pound you lose uh, $25 or $20 on slack $20 on shell and now you got $80 for that four or 5 ounces of king crab it's amazing it,
3: yeah it's amazing, but people were buying it. Correct? Yeah, me were too. They yeah. a bit. I'd love it. Yeah, we found we, we were a little afraid to make the commitment to purchase it, but people still have a desire, so we hung in there. You so hung in there. A little there. bit scary, but but it did sell. Uh, you
0: also your your fish market is named after wild salmon, and uh, it's such an important part of what you do, and you know it's a big big thing for me too. Uh, tell us about um, the coho that are out that are out right now. Although you might not know, you're you got your toes dipped in the ocean. You might not know no, what's going still, on. no, we're there.
3: still still working working uh, remotely down here. So my husband John still does all the buying every day. Yeah, it's been wonderful to see the fresh coho still available. Uh, let we'll see, we're late in October and we're still seeing fresh brokings. And I've got to say, last year we had many days where we had. All five species of wild salmon in the shop at one time. We had the king, the sockeye, the coho, the keto or chum salmon and pink. And those were some really proud days for me to be able to offer all five species on any given day was really a, just really magical and wonderful since mm-hmm. we do appreciate the wild sustainable salmon
0: yeah it's it's super awesome uh i, I love uh, heading down there uh you've been in the fisherman's terminal uh there for quite a long time now i'm not sure exactly how many years but uh uh tell us about your love for that area of seattle and what people should do when they get down there as a tourist
3: Oh, my gosh. It's it's Historic Fisherman's Terminal is how I like to refer to it. You know, one of the largest or if not the largest home port in North America. And such a wonderful history. It's worth walking through. There's a particular hallway that leads the port offices with some wonderful pictures, old pictures. And just walking the docks is fascinating, looking at the different boats. And uh, a lot of the old salmon boats are still active today. Mm-hmm. And when they're in port, it's fun to see. And then, of course, you can see some of the king crab boats, uh, deadliest catch fellows, not to mention all the captains by name. But it, it's just really a fascinating, lovely place. And, of course, not to mention... You can get some great meals down there. I know you're a fan of the Bay Cafe, mm-hmm. and we have the Highliner and Chinooks. And, of course, if you want to cook at home, you come to the Wild Salmon. But it, it's a lovely, lovely property, really well-managed and just really a gem for being in the heart of Seattle. To think we have that kind of a resource, if might be the right word, mm-hmm. in the middle of Seattle. It's yeah. the kind of unheard of that it's been protected and maintained.
0: Well, uh, we only have 30 seconds left. You know, Ray's going to come on and tell us about the the terminal itself. What's one secret Mm -hmm. place that you would, uh, you've found as somebody who goes there every day? Give us a secret place that uh, a tourist should go that no other tourists really know about.
3: Well, I get, let well, there's one secret place, but the court doesn't allow people up there, and it's up into the turret, which gives you a really good view. But there's some liability issues about, uh, letting folks up, but I have had that, uh, special tour. Otherwise, There's I'm gotta be a back into... way
0: that they can't see you. you can yeah. Sneak up there. <laughs>
3: But walking the docks, I really, I, I'll i take my dog down, and we cruise the docks up and down the different docks, and you meet people, and you chat with fishermen, and it just in itself, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience, and not to mention the memorial dedicated yeah. to, yeah. you know, live lost at sea, and I will have to say, two years down now without a Fisherman's Fall Festival, so hopefully we can bring that back next year with this pandemic getting under control
0: yeah that would be nice to get those tents back up and uh, have people flock down there so to speak certainly all right paula cassidy president of wild salmon seafood market there at fisherman's terminal enjoy your time down in mexico we'll see you when you get back
3: i will do eating lots of dorado and red snapper down here two of their favorites
0: nice okay all right thank you tom uh when we come back ray giometti is going to be here to tell us about the ins and out of fisherman's terminal and why it's an important uh Organization here and for employment too. This is part of what makes Seattle tick when it comes to fishing fleets. On Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97 3 FM. We're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, and we're visiting Fisherman's Terminal today. We have Ray Giamatti here, he's the operations manager of Fisherman's Terminal. And uh, to me, it's one of the undiscovered tourist treats. And I'm talking about when you're doing staycations, too. It's uh, As Seattleites, you owe yourself a visit to Fisherman's Terminal. It's just a piece of our history, and it's a piece of our future. When you think about uh, wild fish in our marketplaces and uh, creating economies around fish, because I think the Fisherman's Terminals, you know, you've heard me say, all my listeners on this show many times, that you have to create uh, value around a fishery in order for it to not choose to be something else. So we've been fighting the good fight up in Bristol Bay to create value around Bristol Bay sockeye salmon outside of what the bay is. you know, We know the bay is full of copper and gold, and so we don't want people to make open-pit copper mines up there, so we create value around the fishery. So, Ray, tell us about Fisherman's Terminal and how it creates value for Seattle, and and then we can get into some of the nitty-gritties and how people, you know, our previous guest said there's a secret (laughs) turret that you can get up to. So I want to know how to get there without having to break the law.
4: Well, it depends on who you know. So, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Fisherman's Terminal is the first Port of Seattle property. Uh, we opened in 1914, mm-hmm. and I think that it's somewhat of an, unkept, or an unknown secret in Seattle yeah. because for 90 of those years, recreational boats weren't allowed. So you could come to the terminal, you could eat at any of the four restaurants that are there, and, you, and if you, you had a boat, you had to be a commercial fisherman. Well, about 20 years ago, we started letting recreational boats in, so a lot of people don't know we're there. Mm -hmm. Um, We are, by commission direction, we are there for commercial fishermen. Uh, Every time you see a recreational boat at Fisherman's Terminal, it's my failure to find a commercial fisherman to take (laughs) his spot. And uh, the best part of Fisherman's Terminal is that I get to be, uh, even though I'm government, I get to to be a small business. I know all my customers. My customers are small businesses, and I'm really trying to help them be successful in the ways that I can help them. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, I mean, but the the, the non commercial fleet uh, is helps pay the bills, though. That's why they started letting them in,
4: right? That is so, correct. They yeah. pay probably forty percent more uh, for monthly mortgage than a commercial fisherman. And, um, honestly, I would have to ask them to leave if a commercial fishing boat came and I didn't have the room. Right. Um, we always, one of the things that's different about Fisherman's Terminal is boats are always moving, um, at a regular marina kind of boats come in and they stay there for months or years. Our boats are always doing something. They come to Seattle, they're going to the shipyard, they're, they're going to get fuel. They're, they're going to do work. So I always, if I can hide a boat out for a couple days, I'll have a spot for him. Mm -hmm. The terminal is constantly changing. The boats, commercial fishing boats get used, and they get worn out, and they have to get fixed. And I think that's the value in the jobs for our community. Uh, The boats that are on the Northwest Dock, probably 100 to 150 footers, they they spend about a million dollars a year each boat when they come to Seattle. On electrical, on air con- you know, uh, f- freezer, uh, heating and cooling, yeah, uh, welding, shipyards. So, uh, Fisherman's Terminal creates a lot of jobs, yeah, uh, and that's where I think that we're valuable to the port. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, I go down to Ballard Sheet Metal all the time trying to get this or that made for one of my restaurants, and I'm always behind some boat part from you know somebody's getting re- remade for their ship or for their for their boats for fishing boat. So, we know that you can walk the docks down there, and you just have to be careful, but uh, which is so unusual in this day and age that you're able to do that kind of activity without the required fencing and you know it feels very natural. Some of the boats down there are really interesting; they have huge kind of wings on the back end of the boats. Other boats are the ones we recognize from the deadliest catch. Uh, tell us about what those boats do, and like how do they f-
4: well. What do you got down there? At Fisherman's Terminal, we're very, uh, we focus on salmon a lot because a lot of our, our customers, are, our purse saners are the number one size boat that we have. And basically the different boat types defines on how you catch the fish. A purse saner puts a net in the water and then it makes a big circle and it pulls it up. With with, like a purse, Uh Um, a gill netter will put a net in the water that's weighted on the bottom, and the fish will swim in and they can't back out. They can't get out. So we're very salmon centric. However, we have a bunch of we have a tuna boat now at Fisherman's Terminal through this weekend that's selling uh, tuna on the West Wall. We have uh, longliners that will do uh, uh, pollock and, and cod. We have all kinds of boats, but it's very easy to talk about salmon because that's what the majority of my small boats. At Fisherman's Terminal, if it's 79 feet or less, it's considered a small boat. So 58-foot per seiner is a small boat to us.
0: So, uh, Pamela, you handed me uh, this walking tour map of uh, Fisherman's Terminal. This would be so fun to go down and identify, like I love going to the airport and identifying all the different jets. It'd be fun to go down and walk the docks at Fisherman's Terminal and identify all these types of boats.
4: Let's schedule it, and we want to do it with Ray leading the tour. And <laughs> <laughs> the last page of the uh, walking tour kind of shows how each boat catches the fish. Mm-hmm. Because when you're looking at it, um, it re- you can see the gear and you can see what they're trying to do.
0: Right. Right. So fun. All right, so I have my favorite spots at the Fisherman's Terminal. I love the memorial. That's just somewhere you can go and reflect and, and appreciate uh, the effort that uh, many people, even with their lives, give to right. put fish on our tables. Um, I, I love walking down by the net sheds. It's just a nice little stroll, and the nets are just wacky to me. They're so big. Yes. And uh, they, they stack up and they roll up, and it's amazing that you could ever get them unrolled. Uh, but so the net sheds are really cool. Uh, I, I love going to the Highliner Tavern at, in the evening time, or have a shrimp Louis at lunch. I go to the Bay for breakfast, Chinooks for cocktails and and uh, s- seafood cocktails. Uh, there's just so much to do there, and then you can walk all the way down uh, on the pier down where the big boats are right the, the West Wall. Right.
4: I think that's the very, the very unique part of Fisherman's Terminal is that you actually can eat at one of the four restaurants. And then you can walk, and you can get so close to the boats that you can touch them. Yeah. And it's really an opportunity to walk off all the calories that you might have just taken <laughs> exactly. in. Exactly.
0: Okay, now we had Paul on from Wild Salmon Market, and she gave us her secret favorite place at the terminal. Uh, it's, it's some sort of turret that she says you're not allowed to go to. Uh, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm never one to, to follow Don't the rules. do get Ray in trouble. I'm not one to follow the rules very well. Um, if I sneak up there, am I going to get caught?
4: Well, it's locked. But <laughs> I have the key, and I very seldom miss the opportunity to go up there myself. Uh-huh. I wish my office was up there. Yeah. <laughs> because it's a 360-degree view. And no one's going to come up there just to talk about baseball scores. It's really a circular staircase, and by the time you're up there, you're out of breath. Uh-huh. So it's a great place to hide out.
0: And can you sign up for, like, to get a to special Ray
4: tour? That
1: should be an auction if item. You call
4: me, you can come <laughs> up. And, uh, but also, if you stop at the office and I'm in, I like I said, I will gladly leave my desk to go up in the tower. There you go. I love Ooh, that. Love we're that. doing
0: it. All right, and we're going to set up a time where I'm going to... Uh, I know I've hosted a few events down there for the Bristol Bay situation with uh, Maria Cantwell. Um, we're going to set up a time to take our listeners on a walking
4: tour of yeah. of the uh, Fisherman's Terminal. We could do a Terminal.
1: fundraiser for the Fisherman's Memorial yeah. Fund. why not?
4: Fisherman's Terminal is an underutilized public asset. Yes. So.
0: I know, we always think of the Pike Place Market, but to me this has some of the very same charm. Yes. Yeah, and uh, honestly built about the same time. Right. I was trying to think of the name of the restaurant that was there when I first moved here in seventy seven. It the began Wharf. with the W. The Wharf. Yeah, The Wharf, Wharf Restaurant. Yeah. Okay, Tina Knowles going to rejoin us. She was with us for about uh, eighteen years on this show as our producer, and now she's going to join us as a guest to talk about what's happening uh, down on the coast of Washington and Oregon when she took her travels on Cairo. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 seven three FM. We're back. It's the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo. My name is Tom Douglas, and I am joined by our former producer, Tina Knoll, who helped get the this show started some 20 years ago.
5: Yeah. You
0: don't look like you've aged a day.
5: Neither okay. have you.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're both mm-hmm.
5: just taller and wiser.
0: And whiter. I'm whiter. Never, you've never been white in your life. Here and there. Let's talk a second about, or for a few seconds, about um, why you're here today. One is... Terry wasn't here, and you, I know you hate him, so you, you said you would come yeah, in today. Yeah, I was today. like, sweet,
5: that guy's gone. Bring me <laughs> in. <Yeah.
0: laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, no, but you took a trip down the coast, and one of the things you did with us when you were producing the show is you would share your journeys a bit. And little finds that you uh, came across when you're out and about. So yeah. you took a trip yeah. down the coast, and what did you find?
5: Well, you know what's funny about our coast is it's beautiful and rugged, and also wet. and wet. <laughs> and there's not a whole lot, you know, from once you go. South of Olympia, you know, if you're heading on 101, there's not like a whole lot of like culinary destinations mm-hmm. on our coast, right? And there's like, there's places to stay like Airbnbs and things like that, but they tend to be kind of suburban areas. So I was actually invited to go to this place called Seabrook. Now, I had kind of heard peripheral things about it and I was skeptical. I was like, it Me sounds too. weird. <laughs> like, like it's a made up town. It sounds... It is. Yeah. Okay, so, and I drove in, and it's really cool looking. Like, all the houses, it looks very, like, Mayberry or... Mm -hmm. um, Stepford. Yeah. Yeah. And the streets are kind of all curved, and the houses are up close to the sidewalks. So, you you kind of get this eerie feeling, but it's only eerie because it's so pretty and so pristine. And and,
0: unexpected. And
5: unexpected in this rugged, beautiful... Setting, So, you know, you have the coast there. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so you come up to Seabrook and you come into the main uh, the main street and there's these cute little shops and a bunch of restaurants. Mm-hmm. And again, where else? It's like a little mini Seattle. There's been a, all of these. It's
0: like U Village with housing, with single family housing almost. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
5: <laughs> but you know what's cool about it? So I talked to the founder, Casey Roloff, and he, he was saying like, this is actually how towns were originally created. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an urban village intentionally created so that it builds community. And at first I was like, oh gosh, it's just going to be a bunch of rich white people living here Uh and not invited and not diverse. It's completely diverse. Mm -hmm. They have condos, they have carriage houses, they have a lot of vacation homes and a lot of people that live there full time. And during COVID, what happened is, you know, um, purveyors and restaurateurs and things, people that were getting out of the city went there and built some really awesome restaurants. Mm. So, some of the folks that came from Cactus own a restaurant there called Coco's, where we ate every night. And you, when you belly up to the bar, now that you can, um, the we talked. We got to know like the locals there, which is kind of fun. So there was the this woman and her son that made us this very special cocktails. The food was outstanding, and I feel like when you're on vacation in like a coastal town you're like you're not looking for like culinary delights you're happy delights. with what you can find you're happy with <laughs> yeah. what you can find but, you know there's probably a mom and pop shop uh-huh. you know um but this is like high end delicious cuisine there's a little wine bar there where they serve all kinds of different wines and that is tiny now but expanding to this huge thing um we went to this delicious spot called Rising Tide where you can get that there's a super, super nerdy um, cocktail maker there who is very particular about the cocktails, and they are incredible. Um, and they're also sourcing their foods from the local farms, they have a partnership with the um, the indigenous people around uh, Seabrook so this is nestled i guess kind of close to MoClips yeah over there
0: yeah um, iron springs is right down the road grace harbor is right yep. over yeah
5: so there's hiking you there's um, little bike trails and so we The whole idea of this kind of urban village is to create community and also so you can kind of check your car at your place. Mm -hmm. Once you're there, you don't have to drive anywhere. You can just walk to everything. Yeah,
0: you walk right to the center of town. Yeah, we walk down to the beach.
5: Uh huh. The Uh the beach Uh is is a mile The beach
1: is so beautiful.
5: Yes. And I took my dog and, you know, and just walked and walked and walked on the beach. And it was just really nice to just have this experience in an unexpected place that i haven't seen in washington Uh like kind of ever you know and i know that this is not new this the founder casey which is also i have to say insane to me the guy's my age and he and his wife built this amazing urban oasis you Know kind of in the middle, it's 400 acres.
1: How did he get a permit for that beautiful piece of property? I know. So,
5: apparently, a lot of that is like uh, several growth, right? So, it's been old or growth, old growth. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so he's did a lot to kind of create a sustainable community as well. They there's All every little village of these houses, if you do like a vacation home, they spill out into like a courtyard area or a little fire area or a pickleball court. So you see kids playing all around. There's a farm right there too, where that's a working, will eventually be a working farm. Right now, it's an educational farm. So they have a monastery school where kids, you know, are learning about gardening and, you know. uh, Animal stuff, like, you know, there's goats animal and stuff. stuff. Animal stuff. What animal husbandry. What do you, yeah, husbandry. I don't have a husband. so yes, that'd, I, that'd, be that, the grange. that'd be the, the, the Grange. That yeah. word always escapes me.
0: Well, you know, all along, and Pam, to answer your question a little bit in my mind, is that it, you have to have someone with vision. Yes. And so when you go out to these areas, like if you look down in southern Oregon, where Band and Dunes golf course is, you, you can't believe that, this man could buy a thousand acres on the ocean. On the ocean. That's and what so, I And so, but get. before he was there, nobody had the vision to do that. There was nothing there. There was no right. value to the locals other than him uh, and bringing that in. And the value he's created isn't necessarily maybe what some people like, which is the pristine natural setting or like, did people really in that area really want 400 acres of housing units in a little town? Maybe not, but that's what uh, they needed to create value and nobody else saw that he he put up the money and he said this is what my plan is and of course if you're a local mayor or anybody else chamber of commerce and you're gonna have all this value come to your area you're gonna figure out ways (laughs) you're gonna figure out ways to accommodate them and now Bandon dunes golf course in this area that was absolutely uninhabited Mm -hmm. uh, is now the biggest generator on the oregon coast of revenue uh, day in and day out. They are full. I couldn't even get a foursome on for over 18 months when I called last
5: week. Oh, yeah. They are
0: full every day, every night, and they have hundreds of rooms.
5: And this same thing, Seabrook is filling and filling and filling yeah, up. Because people even can re- this work time, remotely, yeah. You can work remotely. It's also. It's so accommodating, right? You you get there, you can work there. There's several different types of restaurants. There's this cool little Growlers Alley where they're doing like incubator restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you know all kinds of different cuisines. Food they're trucks. testing out yeah. food trucks. Um, there's a great story with the bakers of the town. There's this bakery called Vista Bakery, and these guys it, it, moved over from Canlis. It was like one of the guys that worked at Canless, and his wife was a baker, and they came in, they're young, in July, and just opened a bakery. And killed it. And they are slammed, and there's lines out the door. Um, So I just, I, I wanted to share it with you because it was so unexpectedly wonderful. And when I got there and sat down with Casey, I was like, wait a minute, you created a town? <laughs> to your point, the vision of this man and he bikes around the town. Everybody knows him. Hey Casey, what's going on? So it just had this community I I, I mean I don't wanna it, it well, sounds I'm silly stop or salesy, but it's so We don't nice. have enough
0: time. I want you oh, to yeah, say yeah. a little bit about this brownie that you brought me, and uh, we only have a minute or so. Oh,
5: okay. That brownie came from Greyston Bakery. This is a little switcheroony turn. But if you look at Greyston, this company, it's run by a man called Joe Kenner. And um, Joe Kenner puts humanity first. Mm-hmm. And so what he has created is an open Hiring policy. If you want a job, you can get one at Grayston Bakery. Whether you're a felon, maybe you are homeless, maybe you're struggling financially, you can still get a job there with no background check, no education. They will train you. They have support services that help people. And he's set really to share with the world that this is possible to put humanity first and still make a profit. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I really... Just this is like a, a random plug for this place because I just <laughs> and it's called like it. In. I have I nothing from either of these things. And Bakery. Yeah, and yeah. This
0: is this nickel doodle brownie, and man, is it an interesting texture. It's like a little. It's kind of Muggy. melts in your mouth.
5: Yeah, yeah, and a sweet concept, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. And that's hard to do. Yeah, you know, to just take anybody in off the street. And anybody and everybody. Yep. You can see where that could come back and I'd be curious to look at his uh, financials to see how he Oh, uh, he, he'll
5: tell you they're right out there. Yeah. yeah he does uh, he he's adjusted. been adjusted. Yeah. That's yeah,
0: great. Cuz obviously you can't just lose money forever and hopefully he's making money. That would be the that would be the goal. That's all right, Tina, you're going to stay for some Food for Thought Tasty Trivia. I
5: feel nervous about that. I'm not sure it's a good idea.
0: Well, we got this covered because Sean's playing today, so we're going to crush him. Sweet. Yeah, Sweet. we're going to crush him. Can we
5: make it a vegan variety? No. Nail
0: Pamela off. is all too happy to do that. So, <laughs> uh, When we come <laughs> so back, we it's, uh, uh, it's our Rub With Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Show right here in downtown Seattle, 4th and Virginia. Next week, we are going live again. So, If you want to come and have breakfast with us here at the Hot Stove, just go to hotstove.com, and you can uh, buy a ticket there, and we'll see you here for breakfast next Friday morning. Uh, This uh, trivia is brought to you by Rub with Love. It's handcrafted, versatile rubs made at my warehouse right in uh, downtown Brewery District Ballard. I guess that's not downtown. Uh, We have (laughs) sauces and mustards that add a flavorful kick and a whole lot of love. To just about any meat fish or vegetable look for rub with love products in your local grocery store you'll find them at wild salmon seafood markets uh, the metropolitan markets and of course online at uh, tom pamela uh, who's our winner today and how do we play the game
1: pam corwin is the winner and our three contestants are each going to get five questions the person <clears throat> who gets the most wrong has to pay for the shipping To Pam, And the prize is our Rub With Love Harvest Trio. It's got the veggie rub, the roast rub, and the turkey rub. What could be more fun than that? Mm -hmm. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing's more fun than that. I really
5: like this new twist of the paying for the shipping. Yeah. Uh, uh, Did you bring any money, Tina? I have some coins, It can often
1: run (laughs) $7.50. All
5: right. I'll Venmo you guys. Okay. I mean, Um, should I lose?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I doubt that you're going to. Totally not. Um, Guest of Honor want to go first? Oh, gosh. Okay. okay. Number one, what hazelnut liqueur comes in a bottle with a knotted white cord around the waist, mimicking the religious garments of a friar?
5: A hazelnut liqueur. You guys, what? Friar. <laughs>
1: Think about the
0: the, the friar and the rope around the waist. Friar. That'll get. That'll help. Oh. Ha- I'm with it's Tina. Angelic. I have no idea. No? You guys
2: you, aren't you drinking. You gave me a, a hint. A, I, I, I know you gave me a, a, a
5: hint. hint, and because I this is because so this far, is far beyond a two my hour understanding. show,
0: I'm going to tell you it's called Frangelico.
5: Oh, yeah. Oh,
0: yes, Frangelico. I never would
5: have come up with it, but now that you say I even it, I know. said
1: angelic. <laughs> I know. gave you <laughs> half the word.
5: point is, never would have come up with it.
1: Um, <laughs> there's a great history of soup making. The original evidence that we found about soup called for... Hippopotamus and sparrow meat. Approximately when do you think in history <laughs> that this evidence of soup uh, occurred?
5: The hippopotamus <laughs> and the sparrow meat soup, approximately 1700 AD.
1: AD, after the death. This was 6000 BC. Uh, oh!
5: I mean, really, <laughs> 6,000 I think I was going to come up with 6,000 BC, this is BC. This is,
1: no, Who knows what that was? This a won. crazy quiz uh, Number three, a Spanish dish served con queso Has what added to it? Cheese! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> <I think laughs> she's
5: looking through the, for the easy ones now what, like what, this kid. Is,
1: yeah. what is another name for arugula? Like
5: spring green? Take off um, to space Space. I just. Space Arula.
0: What do you take off in to go to space? (laughs) Spaceship. A rocket. A rocket.
5: Rocket (laughs) lettuce, of course. Did you know this?
0: Wow, Sean, I am not giving her any more clues because it's embarrassing. (laughs)
5: Well, In, no. I, I
0: think after the hippopotamus
2: soup question, I think they're.
5: Thank it you. Just kind
2: of throws you off your game a little bit. I'm really off like, my game. If, if hippopotamus <laughs> is not playing.
1: I'm playing the role of Terry Rotero today. Yes, exactly. <laughs> In Italian cuisine, what word describes roasted bread that's rubbed with garlic, topped with olive oil and salt? Bruschetta. Yay! <laughs> okay, that's two. Two right. Sean, <laughs> you ready? Is- yeah. Yes, uh, yeah. Which part of the turmeric plant is used in cooking? The root. Yes. Uh, Come on. What? Wow, that was
4: fast, Sean. <laughs> Way to go.
1: What Jeez. familiar cooking liquid melts pearls? Uh, Why do you want to melt pearls? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Who would melt pearls? Uh, right.
0: How do you get pearl essence if you don't melt pearls? I would...
2: Cooking liquid... Is this? Could this be like a medium, like a fat or something? Or... It, Oil,
1: olive oil. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Close. Obvious. Vinegar. Oh, okay. Well, that's not close. <laughs> no. What really is opposite. the uh, most consumed fish in the world? I, guess-
2: I I'm just gonna. You can also guess because I'm just gonna guess as well. I think. Uh, gosh, this is something Tom looks like he knows.
1: <laughs> no, it's my
2: only nice. guess would be tuna, but I don't I
1: know. I thought no. pollock. That's a great guess. Uh, not pollock? rockfish. Oh. Oh. Herring. Oh. It's oh, everywhere. I've got a
2: herring problem.
5: Cute. See what you did there. Fishy joke.
1: Onion. Yes. <laughs> this is related to an earlier question. So that's a strong hint. Onion uh, is Latin for what word?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, ball. Close. Circle. Large pearl. <laughs> Hence.
0: Pearl it is. I Pearl was thinking Day. back before the sh- before the <laughs> questions.
1: Who coined the phrase the world is my oyster? Um, was it I didn't know it.
2: Venus De Milo, didn't she pop out of the oyster show on the
1: house? <laughs> <laughs> it-, it came from Shakespeare. <laughs> Shakespeare. That makes sense. Shakespeare. You really Venus <laughs> had- Tina Skyrockets. His to work the lead. really
2: turned out to have some legs
0: on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got the first one really good, Sean, I'm just saying. <laughs>
1: Uh, Mr. Douglas yes. Casu Marzu is a cheese Found in Sardinia That is purposefully Infested with what Oh no
0: mm. The mold would be too easy Because a lot of cheeses are purposely Infected with mold so I'm guessing it's something else. So I'm going to say worms.
1: That's what I would say. Should we let him have it? It's maggot. No, maggots. no. no. The Just
5: giving yes. maggot. You
1: can totally have it.
0: <laughs> yes,
4: it is. <laughs> it it's is a larva. Yeah. Exactly. Are we giving
1: it to him? I mean, I'm reluctant, but okay. let's give him a half. How many? How many tons um, Do I of food <laughs> does an average person in the U.S. eat in a lifetime? In a lifetime. The average
0: age is 84 times one ton a year, so I'll say 84 tons.
1: 35. Okay.
5: Wow, 35 tons of food?
1: In a lifetime. That's a lot of poop. (laughs) Yeah, gross. (laughs) Um, Is it true that biting a wooden spoon while chopping an onion will stop your eyes from watering? Absolutely. Yay! Really? I have okay. No idea. What? It can only be yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> You're tied for Tina, so this is a hard one. Okay. Where did halloumi cheese originate? Turkey. Cyprus. Cyprus. <laughs> did I win? <laughs>
5: no way. Did you
1: get three right? I
5: got two right.
1: You got one point five. Got, no, I got two right. You got to, uh, hey, he did oh. right. So Sean's the big loser, right? Uh, oh,
0: well. But, you know. <laughs> All right, Sean, that's going to cost you $7.50 to
3: ship the uh, Rise. Find if you want to be part of the quick. show,
0: you can join the community on Facebook at Hot Stove Society Radio Show or buy it a, buy a darn ticket to come to the show at Hot Stove Society. If you're listening to us, you're listening on Cairo Radio. It's uh, This show is produced by Pamela Hinckley, sound and production by Sean McFadden, and our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. And remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.